Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on the panel, we have Adi Iyengar. Hello. And me. That's it. It's a small and cozy panel this, this week. I'm Sasha Wolf. And this week, we are going to talk about, and that people probably already know it because it's in the title of the episode, <laughs> domain-driven design and Elixir and how these two belong together or not or what whatsoever, right? What kind of relationship they're standing. And the prompt for that was actually that at my current employer, we had a workshop last week with organized and facilitated by Marco Heimersoff. That name will probably don't tell anybody anything, but Marco is basically a very well-known name in the DDD space in Germany. So he's also organizing the Kandinsky, which is basically the German Domain Driven Design Conference. And there were three days of lots of wisdom, lots of learnings, lots of discussions. We actually all met uh, in Berlin, where the offices of my current employer are, which is also quite kind of nice because we have a very remote workforce. So that was pretty neat. And yeah, now the question is also in that company among colleagues, okay, how do we put these things into action? And as we are a company using Elixir, that has relevance for this podcast. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So maybe first things first, Adi, what is your relationship with domain driven design? And maybe if you want, you could define it for our listeners who have no clue what I'm talking about now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll try. Uh, so my familiarity with it is I read the book in 2017. And around that time, there's our talks in the Elixir community about a web folder not being a separate folder and how repo functions in the Ecto world should be called from Phoenix and then Phoenix 1.3 or 1.5, I can't exactly remember. That's what came out and that gave birth to bounded contexts So uh, that we have in the context modules. So I think that's that term is clearly taken directly from DDD. I think that having read that book and having at, around the same time where Phoenix was making that change was very helpful. It you know kind of put things in perspective. But yeah, I mean, my I'll try to define domain driven design. It's, it's really like as Sasha and I were talking before the recording started. It's like a set of principles, right? Basically, mainly around context. Where if as you you approach your application from a specific domain, the context of that the module that talks to that domain or determines what needs to be done is the context of that domain, right? That's like I guess like the most simplest conclusion of the whole DDD book. There's different models and all that. I mean, I don't even remember all the terms that were like uh, entity, which has, I mean, anything that has an ID is an entity or there is services that are not an entity, but have some functionality and stuff like that. So there's different 
there's a huge kind of array of models and principles along with it. But yeah, if you read the book and you try to follow basic conclusions of that for a few months, for a few projects, you'll you'll internalize that book and then you will not need all these words and jargon, I guess. <laughs> but it's helpful, right? When you, when you talk to other people to like know what they not to know what they're talking about. Anyway, I, I don't think I answered the question. I don't think I defined it any properly for people. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I, th- I think it's a good starting point because from where I'm standing, that what you just laid out is probably what a lot of people in the side of the Elixir community, but also beyond that, is like, okay, I've, I've heard this thing, right? The mind-driven design, like this is what it seems to be about. And I would have probably given like a maybe bit more expanded answer, but not that much before this workshop with Marco uh, last week, because I've, I've read, if, uh, for example, just to, to, to maybe circle back, the book you're talking about is written by Eric Evans, and it's literally called Domain-Driven Design, right? Like, that's the title of a book, and this is kind of a, what started all of this. Um, but there has now been published a whole slew of other books. For example, there's also Domain-Driven Design Distilled by Vaughn Vernon, which I think I also picked at some point in this podcast. I think it's a very good introduction into this subject because Eric Evans' book is great and everything, but it was the first book in the space. So it's a bit... It's huge. <laughs> it's huge and it's difficult to follow along at, at, at spots. So it's not necessarily the best book on domain-driven design, which again makes sense when you consider it was the first. He was the guy who kind of pioneered all of this. So uh, I always tend to recommend domain-driven design distilled as a good starter. But there was also a pretty good book from Scott Lushin, which is called Domain Modeling Made Functional, which by the name you would think has a huge relevance for Elixir. It Nah, not so much because uh, it's about how do you can use types to model your domain, <laughs> which in Elixir is possible. But in the, in the code example, he's using F sharp, so he's more using of like a static type, statically typed language, and using the type system to then spec out boundaries and uh, expectations and so on and so forth, even without writing a single line of code, which is kind of cool and, and good to read. The thing, like of especially now with my newly found knowledge from last week, is that. What I've just talked about and what you talked about is what it's called usually tactical domain-driven design. And tactical domain-driven design is about, okay, how do you take all of these things and put them in code, right? Like what are patterns? What are things you can do? But there's also this whole slew of strategic domain-driven design, which is really more about understanding the domain. And domain is a word now because we use it so much. What does that actually mean? And domain is basically a boundary of knowledge. So insurances could be a domain. Car repair could be a domain. Cinema operation could be a domain, so on and so forth. There's basically any kind of, of area where you can somewhat draw a boundary around and say, hey, people care about this thing inside of here and they have specific knowledge about this thing inside of here. That's a domain. And domain-driven design, as the name suggests, is really about, okay, let's take this knowledge inside of this domain and let it drive the design of the system, drive the de- design of the software. And then there's a whole slew of other words, like right, entity, aggregate, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> but what it boils down to is, is really this. It's like, okay, at the end of the day, you have people who work inside of these domains who work, for example, inside of a cinema. And they really know how the cinema operates. They know, okay, we have payment, you have tickets which have to be sold, you have movies to be shown. And all of those are parts of running a cinema. And all of those, all of this is like specific knowledge these business experts, which is also a word from domain design, have. And you usually, as a software developer, don't. 
And in the best possible world, if you wanted to write software, for example, for a cinema, you would kind of take a business expert from cinema and put his head into, I don't know, like some kind of machine and say, hey, extract the knowledge from this guy and make working software out of that. That would be the best case, right? Because then you'd have all the kind of hidden nitty grits parts of business rules inside of this person's head and extract them into working software. But, well, we don't have this machine. <laughs> That's what software engineers do, but they usually do not have the kind of knowledge the business experts have. And that is really what, at the end of the day, domain-driven design boils down to. It's like, okay, take this knowledge from people who really know this domain inside out and how turn it into working software and how you can do that, right? And then, then it, at some point, it, of course, it boils down to, well, okay, then now we have this thing that people care about, but we have to somewhat translate it into code. And there are some patterns which are more viable than others, which are then entities, aggregates, value objects, so on and so forth. But all of this is then this tactical design, and uh, which is which you would use at a point where you already have a somewhat well enough understanding about the domain and about all of the different parts involved in there. So yeah, that is that is the longer answer I would give now after after having been be spring after having showered in the wisdom <laughs> of our people. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's really cool how you separated the technical and strategic. That's actually so important because you know there's also the planning and planning versus implementation, right? Like phase of the project, like thinking of domain DDD even in planning side when you are questioning, interviewing people, right, <laughs> to build a product and like creating the roadmap. That's a that's a very yeah, very fair point. I think I think that should be done for like all of these, uh, not all, but like most of the software principles. Like you should do, you should make sure to follow those both in the planning and the implementation side. I think one more thing I would add, which really, and you might disagree here with me, but this is this was my conclusion in 2017. My bad, in 2018, I read the book twice. I think I should read it third time. <laughs> it, it's a book you, as Sasha pointed, it's a it's, it's a lot, so you read it multiple times. So the second time I read it, my conclusion was it's like an extension of two solid principles, the uh, I, interface segregation, and a bit of the D, dependency inversion, right? Interface segregation, because you want to, uh, you don't want your clients to depend on interfaces that they don't need to, right? So your, your client should, and your interface should be very thin and specific to your clients, Sim- in, in a very similar way where your context should talk to the domain directly, and the details of the implementation are hidden behind the context, right? And that's like, an extension of interface segregation and, and, and a bit of the dependency inversion where, you know, you're hiding the implementation details from the abstraction, right? So again, if you really follow and understand and have thought through solid principles, DDD should make sense, even if you think of it as an extension of a couple of those principles. I don't know, what, what, what do you think of that, Sasha? I think that that would very well belong, belong alongside other tactical uh, design patterns because at the end of the day, like I said, if you could take a business expert and like somehow extract an insanely messy auto-generated bunch of code, which still encodes all of this knowledge this person had, then by DDD standards, that would be fine. Right? But, but we don't have this machine, right? So at the end of the day, all of these, all of these patterns, all of these tactics, all of these architecture styles we even talk about boil down to us humans being very bad at dealing with complex things. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and for example, one one idea, and I think that's where you're getting at in, in domain driven design and in some of the tactical patterns is that you don't want to concern yourself with the complexities which belong to well tech in as a whole, right? Like at some point you're gonna have to persist data. At some point you're gonna have to communicate with some service over the internet, and all of those are technical details which are completely irrelevant for the domain at hand, right? For example, if if I run a cinema and I want to run offer a reservation service 
through phone or through web. Like as a cinema, I don't care. There's HTTP one or HTTP two or whatever, right? Like I don't fucking care. This is all a implementation details, but still these complexities need to be handled. And that is then where there are certain design patterns. Um, for, for example, there's also like the, the onion architecture or the cleaner architecture or the hexagonal architecture, which are kind of, from my understanding, have a lot of overlap, which are DDD related. They're not strictly core of DDD, right? But the principles of those boil down to, hey, encapsulate the actual business rules without having to care about the technical details, right? Like, I don't want to care in my business rules that this request came in from from a mobile device or that this was an email or that this was whatever, right? I just want to have my business rules nice and clear here and don't have to muddle it. With, with technical details, because that, I think we all probably who have worked in this industry for a while have dealt with code bases where the technical complexities are intermixed and in, uh, entangled with the business rules. And it's so hard. And like at some point, like, hey, but now we want to also trigger it. I don't know. Through an email, you're like, what? <laughs> right? Because you maybe have some business code, business rules kind of inside of your web controller in Rails or whatever, and you have it in a sidekick job and you have it somewhere over there, but there's no place you can go to and say, hey, do this business thing. <laughs> and this is what yep. then boils down to, okay, inside of my domain, I don't care about emails. I don't care about web requests unless this is literally my domain. I just want to res- reserve a ticket for this movie, right? So why shouldn't why can't there be a piece of code which says reserve a ticket for this movie? <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think besides that last part of why can't there be a piece of code that does this, your entire model you, you could cut that and paste it, and someone can hear hear that, and they might say, oh, he's talking about separation of concerns. Right. Besides that last part, saying that there should be one module talking to your domain directly. But yeah, I guess at that point, like, I mean, yeah. The DDD is, you know, all of these principles from a domain perspective. <laughs> what was it called? It, um, was it aspect-oriented programming or something where you need to, it's like modularizing everything. Again, it, it's aspect-oriented programming from a domain's perspective. Or uh, A lot of times when people say domain, it's all, they also mean end user, but which is, which is not completely true, but true in most cases. Yeah, I think this, is, this opens up an, an interesting tangent. Uh, also, Marco in the workshop went into uh, is that the domain-driven design of itself is a kind of a, of a gravity funnel, right? Because this end idea is, is really about, okay, let's take this knowledge from business experts and that's what that's what matters, right? That That's what we want to put onto automate around. And every tool which helps us alongside, helps us in that effort is potentially a tool you can use to do domain-driven design. And the, the interesting thing there, for example, is is that in the original book, right, from Eric Evans, he never talked about things as, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if he never did, but like he only briefly uh, tangentially talks about events, for example. Also, he never talks about a thing called event storming. And event storming is a technique actually invented by Alberto Brandolini, which is now the de facto modeling technique used inside of the DDD community. Because it's just very good at getting this information out of business experts' head. Like, it's really good at that. So it's something the community kind of gathered around and said, hey, this this is a good tool for this job. But it's not 
it wasn't in the original book, right? <laughs> it's, it's not the thing. It came from people trying to do domain-driven design, trying to solve these, these difficult problems about, okay, how can I, as a software engineer, find this, some kind of language to talk to business people? How can I learn the things they know to a degree, to an understanding that I can actually put this in production? Because there's also this, I think it was also Alberto Bernardini who said that it's not the, some, some, something like that. I'm going to paraphrase because I don't remember exactly, but it's not the knowledge of a business expert which goes into production. It's the assumptions of the developer and that's that's the truth right there right like at the end of the day it's what beep as engineers software engineers understand this is what ends up in production not the perfect knowledge of the business experts about all the kind of weird edge cases there are in the real world but whatever they software engineer understood and which in in one quote basically highlight underlines why this idea about okay you have these business experts you have software engineers software engineers write the code but you kind of want the knowledge of business experts ending up in the code so how can you do that this is why why it underlines why why this is important why why this matters and at the end of the day why also all of these these patterns we, we now mentioned probably briefly like right, aggregates value objects the reversion inversion of control all of those are only tools for this end goal for this to achieve these this means where did i want to go with this <laughs> it kind of went on a rambling here but yeah Again, like exactly, gravity funnel and event storming. So it just shows that in theory, anything which helps you to get closer to that, it's a tool you can use for uh, for domain-driven design. And it's also, for example, e events are something the community is very much embracing because at the end of the day, if you look at a data, if a business, most of the things which trigger actions inside of businesses, which mean which which uh, which have rules associated to them are in some way or another an event, something which happened in the past, right? For example, user requested to reserve a ticket, right? Like that's potentially, in this, to get back to the cinema example, an event which might happen, the thing that happened in the past. And that is why also a lot of the modeling techniques in the domain driven design space say, hey, events are a good thing, but you don't have to use them. You can if you want them, but they're just a good tool for this job, for encoding this knowledge and for for building a system around them. Does that make sense? Does that kind of answer your question, I guess? Or was that incomprehensible, Sasha Rambling? <laughs> it wasn't completely incomprehensible. Yeah, it, 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 I think the last bit definitely makes sense. It's, I mean, we use events as a, a way to accomplish or get have a better domain-driven design in our systems, system too, you know? Like having a clear, yeah, I mean, yeah, the events that are generated through the user-facing app are more domain-driven domain versus the e events that are generated as a, as a result of consumption on those events are completely different. So that totally makes sense. Even storming, you mentioned, right? That's just like the brainstorming methodology where people just talk through sequentially what happens as a request is started from a domain perspective. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, it's, it's a bit more than that, but it boils down to this. It's, an, it's a collaborative modeling exercise where you get together. As Pandolini puts it, he says, uh, get people with questions and get people with answers in the room. And mm. you use a lot of sticky notes <laughs> in that process. Right. And at the end of the day, like simplified, you basically have a timeline. And the best case, you actually have an infinite modeling surface, which you, of course, in practice never have, but um, really as big as possible because the bigger it is, the easier it is for all for people to say, I'm just going to model this here because I don't take up space. Right? Okay, there's enough space. Right. Um, but you try to get all of the events on that wall and you say, okay, in, in a somewhat sequential chronological order, which 
model whatever currently you are trying to model. You can do like a big picture event storming where you really say, hey, let's model the business as a whole. And then you probably will have parallel things which don't have a clear connection between each other because at the end of the day, businesses are still messy places where there's no clear link between each and every single thing a business does. Um, but you can also use it to really model out one specific process, right? Say, for example, hey, I want to model out our onboarding flow, for example. You can really do that. And the nice thing about it is that it, um, like the main purpose of it, it's not the artifact at the end you produce, like the sticky notes, but it's about this collaborative modeling where you actually synchronize everybody in the room about the, the model and the terminology you're talking about. Because there's like also one part, which is called the, the narrative, the narration, where you really start at the beginning and then you try to narrate a cohesive uh, story about the events on the wall. And it, it very clearly becomes uh, obvious when something is missing, <laughs> very quickly becomes obvious. Like, okay, why this happens and then this happens? Like, this makes no sense. What's the link here, for example, right? And this is really what, what it boils down to. And that can easily take up a whole day. This was, for example, what we did on day two, this three-day workshop wow. we did, where we had like the, C the CEO in the room. Uh, we had this, we had somebody from, from B2B. We had somebody from marketing, so on and so forth. We had very lots of people from the product development team. And then we really mapped that out, right? And th that was quite a learning experience and, <laughs> and lots of lots of lots of lots of sticky notes being used. So nice. yeah, that, that's what event storming is. And the nice thing about the methodology is that you can actually then take some of these events you put on that wall and take them, for example, and then say, okay, now we actually use literally this event like in this name and use it in the code. Because why not? I mean, like it's a yeah. thing you modeled. It's a thing you aligned on. Everybody agrees that this is a thing that happens inside of your domain. So right. why not use it in the code? So yeah, Makes that sense. is. But yeah, to, the, to maybe also circle back to where we started, right? because we talked about, okay, Elixir and Phoenix and introducing the spawn contexts. But why are we talking about all of this domain design stuff and the episode is after all called domain design and Elixir. So where does Elixir maybe come into here? And maybe to take like one step back and explain that Phoenix introduced these contexts, right? What does that actually mean? And for example, in the in the inside of domain driven design, there is this terminology called bounded context. And the bounded context is something where you say, okay, you have a subpart of your domain. And in the example of the cinema I had earlier, right? You could say you have a subpart of your domain, which is payment. You have a subpart for your domain, which is tickets. You have a subpart of your domain, which is movie showing. And yes, they have a relationship inside of each other, but each of of those subdomains, they have, again, things they care about, the others don't, right? Instead of payment, for example, you, like, for example, tickets might only care, hey, a ticket needs to be purchased, right? The customer needs to buy it. But if he does it with cash, with Bitcoin, with PayPal, with, I don't know, by, by doing, by bringing a bunch of eggs and offering, <laughs> <laughs> like it doesn't care, right? Like it, that's a ticket has to be paid for. But instead of payment, of course, yeah, you care. Okay, you have a cash system that's completely different from a PayPal system. That's completely different from a Bitcoin system. All of those things that have their own intricacies. And then at the end of the day, when you actually, because business right now is the problem space or the problem space of, of your domain. But at some point, you might actually want to put that into, like want to build a system around that. So you're entering solution space. And then you can say, okay, we have these bounded contexts. And inside of that context, things have their own meaning and you can draw a boundary around it, which is why it's called a bounded context. So for example, inside when you would, would want to build software for a cinema place, you could have a bounded context, which is payment. You could have a bounded context, which is tickets. You could have a bounded context, which is movie showing. And they have then again relationships between each other, but they are 
boner. They have their own little view on the world and can model clearly inside of that without having to care about the nitty-gritty details of how, for example, a ticket has been paid for. And that is, from my understanding, also where Phoenix then comes from and says, okay, we have these context modules. We have, for example, accounts. We have, for example, I don't know, let's say tickets, to stick with an example, right? To We have a payments context and it's decoupled from the actual web logic. It's just, okay, this is what the business boils out down to. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. The Elixir community, from my understanding and from my, from what I can see, also what the generators do is then takes a more pragmatic approach and says, okay, we're still going to generate a bunch of actor things here, <laughs> which if we circle back to what we said earlier, would be more of an implementation detail. If you wanted to really do full-blown domain-driven design, you might not necessarily want to do. But that's also something, again, where domain-driven design says, hey, if this is good enough for your particular thing for your particular part of the domain, sure, then do act or whatever, right? But maybe you also have a part of your domain, which is so insanely complex that it's worth the effort to say, I want to extract all of those technical details out. I actually really only want my business logic here because we are, I don't know, we're doing some high-speed financial trading, which is an insane amount of legal obligations and all of those need to be modeled in code. And then it's easier to understand if we don't have to care about database details, for example. But that's all again, trade-offs and things we have to decide on a case-by-case basis. That makes sense. That totally makes sense. And yeah, I, I think I think it's yeah case-by-cases Perfectly said. And also, just because you decide that something doesn't need to be part of a boundary doesn't mean in future it will not change, right? So it's also important to reevaluate and be open to rethinking things. Yeah. But but I think one thing I I'm, I'm always a fan of if you have if you are if you have a pattern you should have a way to enforce it. And Elixir, Sasha, have you used anything to enforce uh, such a pattern? Right. For example, not using repo in the classic case of an N plus one query, right? So have you, have you used anything to uh, kind of enforce that? Indirectly, because what, which is not necessarily I did it, but for example, if you actually would want to um, go into this modeling that I mentioned earlier, then for example, this, uh, you might truly want to look into an area we'd already talked about in the past, which is like event sourcing and then again CQRS, because those again have a quite an overlap with some of the ideas behind domain design. When you look, for example, at what Commanded, which is like this popular library, right, that Elixir to do secures and event sourcing does, you also have aggregates there and they trigger events. But the aggregate itself, actually, it's really just a module. It's a module which holds state, but there's nothing associated to that aggregate which says, hey, this is a Commanded thing, right? This is really just a module with a bunch of functions returning events. And then all of those are then used by Commanded. So it's actually somewhat a good example of you have this business logic, you have this thing which encapsulates business logic, which on at the smallest ato- atomic level, so to speak, is this aggregate, aggregates its data from a bunch of events, and and but it doesn't have any technical details in it. It's really not, it doesn't have, I'm, I'm saved 
in the database over here with this table. But it's really, okay, I, I'm this one module, I have a state, and I return events, and I somewhat uh, react to commands. So while I haven't done it myself, this would be, so it's just said like somewhat, this is, like I've worked in a code base which uses use, use commanded, and which then at the end of the day kind of enforced this pattern on how you want to mutate your state and how you want to model things changing inside of your system. Nice. I mean, that's, that's definitely a good way of doing that. I was like thinking more even in terms of like a module. Have you heard of Boundary? Uh, Sasha Yurik wrote that. It's it's like a way to make sure, for example, just like add a dependency and say, hey, Ecto repo can only be called from X, not X dot X web, right? So like, uh, like a namespace restriction. So like th- uh, that's kind of what I was looking at. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, before I think Boundary was written, I used uh, Mix has a cross refs. Xref uh, is what it's called, uh, an Xref task. Yeah, that's also a good way of like uh, getting all the references at compile time and see seeing like what modules called what modules and like making sure nothing gets um, outside of the boundaries you're defined. I don't have that in my current code base. Uh, it's, I think it's too simple and small, like because we are like very you know microservicesy right now. So like like we're event driven microservices. So like what you said, Sasha, it's like very you know um, the separation is like beyond the application layer so we don't need to have that compile time thing but if you if uh, any of the listeners have like a big more more monolithic sort of a uh, application you should definitely check out boundary to enforce so, so these kind of like uh, patterns yeah that makes a lot of sense i wonder if there's for example i mean i could imagine that credo could in theory have a check for that or you could write a custom check for that i'm not familiar with it having that but if from what i've seen credo being doing it, it would not be unfeasible, right? I say, hey, for example, I, I mean, like, if you wanted to have a mon- big monolithic code base, and then you maybe to circle back, you actually would want to say, hey, we have these different bounded contexts, and they should only really communicate through like top level modules, right? For example, you have maybe let's say we, we would write a code base for the Elixir Mix podcast, right? Then you would have a top level Elixir Mix module, and below that we maybe have I don't know listener or subscribers or an episode uh, recording whatever as a modern context and there's like a link between those and then for example inside of a subscriber's bounded context you would only want to call to the recording bounded context on like a top level right i can not use modules below that that's potentially something i could easily see inside of credo or i mean if not i've never used boundaries so i can't really say anything about it but yeah i've not ever used anything like that at the end of the day depending on the size of your team it's also something which humans and code reviews can easily enforce <laughs> if everybody is on the, on the same page there. Right? This, which was also one of the reasons we did that workshop in the first place, because while I myself already was quite familiar with certain ideas about domain driven design, most of the team were not. And the CTO and me we were both thinking, hey, this is actually a thing which could be useful for us as a company, for us as a team. So let's do this product, do this workshop also to get everybody on board. And now everybody is like, has an alignment about why these ideas are important. Yeah. And I would also like to, to go back to something you just said briefly, Adi, because you said, okay, instead of these boundaries, how you can do change, right? How you can, how you, it makes easy to change things. And this is also why maybe some of the listeners might not think, yeah, but why, why should I care, right? Why, why should I do all of this effort? I write this code and it works. Well, what's up, right? Like, how, why does it matter how I, how I write it? And that is where change actually becomes important because we all know businesses are things which are changing. There's probably no business out there which is not changing a little bit. And if there is, they're probably going to go out of business soon, right? 
So it also means that the understanding of business experts changes about what the business at hand is. And in the best possible case, if you have a system which is really aligned with a domain and with a problem space and with like the subdomains and so on and so forth, and you actually have a changing business rule, there's one place you go to in your code base to change it, right? There's like one thing, you say, okay, this one thing changed in this particular way. Okay, now I have this, like I know exactly where to look in my code base because it's well aligned. The solution space is well aligned with the problem space. And that's one of the major strengths about doing all of this where you can then actually, it becomes easier to change the system. It becomes easier to 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 work with whatever changing requirements. Of course, then you sometimes have Kraken, like GPR, which says, oh, you have to be compliant. <laughs> and you're like, well, fuck me, I guess. But then again, it also impacts the business as a whole, right? Like, I mean, there are business out there, okay, GDPR is coming around, okay, but it impacts every, every, every possible, every part of the business. And then it's not no surprise that it would also potentially impact every part of software. But if you have this alignment between, okay, this is what the business looks like and this is what the code looks like, it becomes easier to model change. So yeah, yep, that's, makes sense. which is like what the hidden strength kind of is, I feel, about all of this. Yeah. And I think if everybody followed along to this point, you're probably not surprised when I say Elixir at that point is not necessarily better or worse for doing domain-driven design. It's potentially just a tool and it might, yeah, there might something might, might be some things inside of Elixir which make certain patterns easier, right? Like aggregates which have like stayed encapsulated and only really care about that. You can easily model that as a process. So there's like a nice alignment there. But if you, I don't know, if you have a, if you can achieve perfect alignment between your business uh, problem space and your solution space in JavaScript, yeah, then sure, do it. Um, so yeah, but maybe then to, to, to also to, to give to give our listeners a bit more me, a bit more things to, to chew on. So we now talk about okay, this is where Phoenix comes from with his context. These are the ideas. We, how do can we talk about boundaries? What are some other things? Like I mean, you also talked about more of the the, 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 the patterns you know from domain driven design. So how was your experience already with actually putting these things into action then, right? Like, let's assume, okay, you actually, you you have this perfect understanding of the business as a whole, right? Like, you know what your business experts think. And you already said earlier that if you read the book two times, so how was your experience and then actually taking these patterns, these ideas and building a system with that? Any war stories to tell? Yeah, I mean, the capacity that I've worked in mostly is small company, small insurance startup. So mm-hmm. generally impulse for everyone including myself is like not to overthink over engineer right so i think it's it's mostly like trying to find that balance really a place where it's good enough to help us release but yeah i mean good enough so we can release and uh, release a feature and also not spend a lot of time maintaining it in the near future so yeah it generally it stops at building a new application it stops at you know that uh, boundary context right and Moving communication to outside of the application layer, like you were talking about, like events or even HTTP, provides that implicit boundary, really. You know, you don't even have to worry about the boundary. Uh, at that point, yeah, combination of these two things helps. Although GraphQL messes it up quite a bit, but that's a different conversation. Uh, how does GraphQL mess it up? Now I'm curious. I mean, it, you're giving them the control over all the details of the API, right? Uh, the point of GraphQL is giving more control to the client, which works in certain cases, but then with control comes like responsibility, right? With great, great power comes great responsibility. So the clients need to 
have more information and more knowledge about some part of implementation. Of course, you can apply the ED in designing the GraphQL API itself. But generally, in my experience, people start off with a one-to-one database to GraphQL, which is not the ED. Yeah, yeah, 100% agree. I mean, at the end of the day, it also is, like I said earlier, I was hinted at like what, what, how the database looks like. It's really an implementation it, it, like in a, right. If you had a perfect DDD uh, code base, applying all of these principles because you want really to model the complexity and only the complexity, then the, the database is really a de- implementation detail. And it might be MongoDB, it might be Postgres, it might be Cassandra, whatever is best for the job at hand for your particular right. use case. Yeah. So yeah, but yeah. I often what I often see is also DDD, which is like database-driven design. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's that's exactly. I think I think generally when people do apps and then GraphQL, that's the first impulse people go with, and kind of absent helps you do that too with like actual data loaders and stuff. It, it encourages that, which makes sense. Again, I, I think I think you you said perfect DDD. You know, like, I think that's another another learning. I would say if you're like you know late junior, early mid-level engineer, a learning for them would be like, you know, kind of, uh, I mean, there's two categories of engineers, right? One who, ones who cares, ones who don't as much. And you, the fact that you're listening to this podcast probably means you're, you're in that caring category. And for you, a good thing to like, kind of like internalize early on in your career would be no code is perfect, right? And like, uh, it's it's an ongoing evolution, even though the code might look perfect at that instance of time to you. It might not look the same code, might not put, look perfect in that instant of time to a different you, <laughs> right? So uh, it's it's a uh, uh, if you time travel back to that time, it might not look perfect, right? So and I, I think that's something to kind of like for, for for engineers to learn when have you hit that point of diminishing returns, right? And it, and there's so many variables the kind of company you work at, uh, if the kind of problems you're solving, your timeline, the size of your engineering team so many variables that go into that so it's fun as engineers to you know kind of uh give in to our impulse of engineering right uh, uh, and oftentimes over engineer but yeah you're not you're never going to write perfect code there's no such thing as perfect code yeah they agreed and also I, I like how you phrased it because you said no code is perfect and you can also understand it as no code is perfect <laughs> so like if, if you can get away with yeah, it, not, yeah. not writing code it's also good right yeah <laughs> That's 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 per- yeah that, that's exactly true. If you write no code, that means you have no code to maintain. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. This is actually this is also something uh, in one of his talks, Marco Heimsoff, the guy who did the workshop, he's saying if if you if you can get away with writing less code, that's good because co- code is costly to write, to maintain, and to educate. Right. Right. So less code is actually a good thing. Yeah. So exactly. I mean, <laughs> if, yeah. Another thing is like if you have great code, great piece of code. And you add great piece of code to it, you're decreasing how great that old code is. Yeah, like because yeah. you know, it, just because you add good code to good code doesn't mean you, you're messing up the other good code too. That's just how it works. Yeah, yeah. That's just how complexity works. Yeah, and it's it's also what I mean. This is like this is like now kind of getting into really big picture thinking of architecture, but it's like also something we talked about in this workshop. It's which is like there's accidental or I forgot the other word. There's accidental complexity. And there is uh, inherent complexity, yeah. And accidental complexity is what we just talked about earlier. And all those, like, you, I don't know, you have 
to deal with the databases. You have to deal with web requests. You have to deal with authentication, whatever. All of these things which are necessary to make the system run, but are not essential. Yeah, that was the word. Essential complexity. Accidental and essential complexity. And there's essential complexity. And essential complexity is really, it's the complexity of your domain. It's the complexity of the business problem. And you want, in the best possible world, you want a system which is high on essential complexity, just as high as it needs to be to model the complexity of your business, basically equal to that, and which is as low as possible on accidental complexity. And the best, I mean, as I talked earlier, as I said earlier, if you have a change in your business, you want, in the best case, you have one place to change your code. It can even make it further. If you say, for example, I have a, I have a description. I have like a, a thing which exactly explains how a certain feature or how a certain business problem works and how a solution to that works. And you change one sentence in that. In the best case, there's one line of code you need to change, right? Yeah, there's like a one-to-one mapping. That's probably unachievable. Every time, but if you the closer you get to that, the easier it's also to maintain that system because there's a very clear understanding. Then again, there's like technical design patterns in DDD which make that easier, and you can somewhat, if you want, get close to an ideal where you have some code which is even somewhat readable to a business expert, like with a bit of handholding. And like I said, I'm not going to say that this is worth it all the time, which is like a one thing I wanted to mention is this is like also an idea from domain-driven design that you have these different subdomains, um, like I said, payment, movie showing, uh, uh, tickets, but not each of those is equally important to your domain. For example, payment is a thing you need to handle but if you become the best make of cinema which handles payment in the best possible way on the planet, it's probably not that much business differentiation, right? Like you're not going to differentiate that much from competition. Um, but maybe ticket reservation, tickets, that is the thing you can really differentiate. You can really make it easy for people to, super simple to get the ticket and, and get it and get into the cinema. So that is the thing where you can then say, hey, this is also has like high, bus- yeah. high ticket, high business differentiation comp- opportunity, but also maybe it has some level of complexity, so it's not super easy to copy. But, um, and then we can really say, okay, this is the part, for example, of our business, where, of our software, where we want to put all of these things into practice, where we want to really pour in the effort to differentiate as much as, as, uh, as, uh, as much as possible, while also not ha- having it so complex it's overwhelming, but complex enough so it's not easily copable. And those are then potentially your subdomains, which are core to a business, where you can really differentiate. But for example, payment, very very likely is not unless you're PayPal. So yeah, it circles back to what I said earlier, but like you don't want to do that everywhere, but there are potentially parts of your business, of your code base, where it makes sense to go this extra mile, where it makes sense to invest this extra effort. But that really depends on your domain. And that is, I guess, a sentence um, both software engineers who have been in the business for a while are familiar with, well, which part of the domain is, is it? Yeah, it depends. <laughs> so yeah, that is, I guess... So if you want, if like, maybe like one last section, because I also need to put this to a close. I have a follow-up meeting after this. I need to go to the hairdresser with my son. <laughs> so if you would want to get started, what would your, like if you if you have like an engineer who maybe has heard about domain-driven design, doesn't really understand all the bus. And yeah, I think we gave somewhat a roundabout view on, on why this why these ideas are important but and how to put them into action into elixir what, what would be a resource you would recommend like hey i have like a basic understanding i know i've listened to this episode but now how can i take this from here on any any resources you would recommend i mean it's very tough i think ddd is one of those meta concepts that you understand by doing but yeah that's the thing with software architecture you don't you need it's hard to get opportunities to do that because side projects probably would not be big enough in scope for you to play with different architectures. Yeah. 
And if we don't get that kind of an opportunity at work, it's very hard to very hard to do something that kind of mimics that. But I mean, try to design systems. Start by watching some system design videos, right? And then then try to design parts of it which have you know complex boundaries. Just try to write code for parts of it that have complex boundaries. That's what I did. I watched some system design videos. I forget this guy's name. He, he's an Indian guy on YouTube. Uh, boy, I forgot his name. I think he does pretty good uh, system design stuff. Uh, he used to do it at least three, four years ago. And like, you know, I think he did like Twitter and other things. Like, like pick like a part that's like, you know, most connected, has most, you know, uh, connections and try to write code for that and try to design interfaces for that code and just like mock them. I know. I mean, that's like the best answer I can give. You can read Read books and stuff, but all of this will only, you'll only kind of like every person understands this in a different way. So you do understand this, you have to code. And it's side projects of this scope are very hard to do. I have only two side projects of this scope and I have written at least 500 applications and I have only a couple. It's hard to write side projects this big. So. Yeah, I agree 100%. And it's also, if you actually have a side project of this scope, then you will probably mostly practice the technical side, right? Because it's still the side project from your head, right? And like actually right. getting to, the, you're not the, you are basically in the same the business expert and the developer in the same person. So you're not going to practice all of this methodologies too well and get the knowledge from business experts. So yet my, my recommendation would be for the technical side, I would actually recommend the book, as I mentioned earlier, Domain of the Skills. It's a lot smaller than Eric Evans' book. And it, it captures the, the essentials about like the technical side, how, how, how about a modern context explains what, what an entity is, explains what an aggregator is. We didn't really talk about that in detail because there are so many resources out there. It doesn't make sense to repeat all of that. So this is a book I would recommend. And then for, well, to the more strategic side, and I would, to be honest, I would actually recommend either go, go to meetups or go to conferences and talk to people who, who have put this into practice and maybe they participate in workshops there. That's arguably the, the the most effective way to get started on this. Also, maybe you'll watch some talks. There's also an event storming book from Alberto Bandolini, which I think is still unfinished and he probably will never finish it because the methodology also changed over time. And he's like this queerly Italian guy. Like I've actually met him at some point. So I'm not surprised the book never got finished. <laughs> but it's also, it's a good start if you actually want to, 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 to get into, okay, what does event storming actually mean? Like whoa, what are all of the different ideas there? And then on the, like, the middle level, like architecture, like basically strategy meeting tactical there's a pretty good article i also mentioned in the past episode which is um ddd hexagonal onion clean architecture how i put it all together i'm also going to link it link it in the show notes uh, but at the end of the day it boils really like ddd as i said earlier is, is like a set of principles it's really a way of approaching software design and software building software and solving problems at the end of the day on a really holistic perspective and there's not one single source you can point at and say, hey, this is this, this is exactly it. It's kind of, to that, related to what Agile, like not the everything is certified Agile thing, but like the original ideas behind Agile is very much related to that. Like it was a set of principles, a set of ideas you want to put into action to be better in doing projects. And DDD is some, on that front, very much related. It's not this one thing, you do it and then you do DDD, but it's, it's a set of things which can potentially help you achieve this goal better. So yeah, 
In a nutshell, technical domain-driven design is still by Vaughn Vernon. Um, this article, DDD, hexagonal, on the Kenya architecture, how I put it all together, and go to meetups, go to go to conferences. And I mean, if you actually have maybe somebody who you wanted to make a project with, who has like maybe some kind of business expertise, business expert level expertise, and they've been bugging you to do this type of project and you kind of want to, that could be a good a opportunity to practice some of that. But I mean, I'm as a working dad, I'm not going to tell you now, new side projects because, well, I don't. <laughs> I don't have time for that. <laughs> so yeah, those would be my recommendations. Okay. Then I would say let us go to picks. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. So, Adi, what are your picks for this week? Yeah, I guess uh, I can put Boundary as one of the picks. Uh, check it out. Good way to enforce some of the patterns we talked about. I also wrote a blog post before Boundary came out about how I use Xref, something like that. If you want to check that out, see really how Elixir implements Xref, that might be fun. Another thing, I had a few days off, and one of the things that did just, I was I read through documentation of macro module in Elixir, and it's pretty awesome. It's evolved a lot. Last year, I read it through that was probably 1.1 or 1.0 something. And I, yeah, I thought it was, yeah, anyway, yeah, it, it was really, it was really, it has really evolved. And what you could do really now, I just, just want to test its power. You could literally just use a macro modules and call the functions and macros in there and write a brain for compiler, write a Turing complete languages compiler, which is pretty powerful. So try it out. It's it's actually pretty evolved a lot. And again, um, if you guys want like a nice, uh, fun hour long project or maybe two hour long project, uh, try to write a BF compiler using Macro Module. Another thing, I've been really, I've been really craving some data structures stuff. So I've been reading through some Erlang types, uh, digraphs, and trees. Uh, Erlang has. Some really good data structures too. We should check out some Erlang documentation. At least a links to all of these things uh, for people to check. Diagram especially is really really good, and it's like I think it's I think it uses ETS as a you know storage mechanism, which is also really cool. Awesome. So I have a couple people who are looking for jobs. I have a lot of people who are looking for jobs, but a couple especially who are very very talented engineers. Well, three. Uh, one is one of my best friends someone who has mentored me and is one of the best engineers I've worked with. And I've worked with quite a few good engineers. Uh, he's looking for a job. He didn't want me to, all of these didn't want me to uh, say their name directly. Uh, they're a little shy. So if you're looking for a senior Elixir engineer with eight years of experience who who writes awesome code, great at testing, great at pedal stack, live view and all that, reach out to me. Yeah, uh, reach out to me and I'll connect and I'll connect you with him. There's a couple of junior engineers, one with a lot of Rails experience, even though they graduated a couple of years ago, but they've been doing Rails since their first year. So uh, they have a lot of Rails knowledge, but have been fascinated with Elixir for a while. They've been attending a mentorship session that I do weekly. Bruce Tate, Sophie DiBenedetto, they are like mentors as well there along with me. And this mentee has been attending that for a while, has a couple of years of Rails experience, professionally, but has been doing Rails for six so years. Uh, is really looking for an Elixir job. Very talented. They're 
much more ahead of where I was in two years. So again, if you're looking for like a mid-junior, mid-Elixir engineer with Elixir interest and some Elixir knowledge with a lot of Rails experience, reach out. And yeah, I have a few other great engineers too. I was telling Sasha, I'm helping eight people look for jobs and potentially nine uh, by the time this episode, episode gets published. So reach out if you're looking for especially mid-level Elixir engineers. Nice. I really admire how you're helping people with executability finding jobs, Adi. I think that's great work, seriously. So, yeah. Um, I can't compete with that last Hyperfos was picked. <laughs> but I, I want to reiterate like, on the resources I just mentioned. So there are two concrete things I can point you to. Uh, there is a virtual DDD community. They also have a meetup, which is just that virtual DDD meetup. They have speakers from around the world. I think they meet monthly or bi-monthly. I'm not quite sure. Um, so maybe that is something you might want to check out. But they also have a Slack and a, and a Twitter, so on and so forth. So that's potentially an interesting source to get started on some of these things. And I also definitely want to pick the Kandinsky, Kandididinsky, which is, it's by the way, fun fact why it's called Kandinsky, because the original art from the DDD book, Domain Driven Design from Eric Evans, was a Kandinsky painting. So that is why the conference is called Kandinsky. And there's a domain-driven design conference in Germany, in Berlin. It's end of October. It's the beginning of November. I will be there. So maybe any of you who is like living around Europe, listening to this and is interested in getting their hands study of domain-driven design, that could be something you might want to check out. It's also one of these conferences which is not super expensive. They deliberately are designed to be somewhat more affordable. They're not cheap by any means, but they're definitely not 2,000 euros, kind of expensive, like some of the very big conferences. So yeah, Kandinsky. And to stick to my 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 history of, of picking games, I have started playing a game which is called Citizen Sleeper, and it's a narrative cyberpunk science fiction game. And I guess I, I found it in my Steam Discovery queue, and I was like, oh, this looks interesting enough. I'm going to check it out. And then it went on sale, and I was like, yeah, let's get it. And then, and then some evening I was like you know what, I'm not really in the mood for my usual games. I'm just going to check this thing out real quick. I'm going to play like an hour. Then it was 2 a.m. So <laughs> that happened. <laughs> if you're into cyberpunk, if you're into science fiction, if you're into narrative games with more lightweight gameplay, it's not a walking simulator by any means, like not super lightweight. It has still some kind of gameplay mechanics, but it's really more of a read-heavy side, narrative-heavy side. I'm really enjoying it so far. Citizen Sleeper. It's on Steam. It's also available on good old games, but it's, I think also for the Switch. So they are, it's available on multiple platforms, so you might want to check it out. That's that, Those are my picks for this week. That actually reminded me I have one video game pick too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I had a few days off, as I mentioned earlier, and I replayed a game that I was really unimpressed with in 2020, Assassin's Creed Valhalla, just because it was following almost a perfect game, Assassin's Creed Odyssey. I replayed it last week and I realized it's a pretty, pretty solid game. It's a solid 8 out of 10, 8.5, 8, 8 or 8.5 out of 10. So yeah, if you guys haven't played AC Valhalla, you found open world RPG, Assassin's Creed like games, you should give it a try. It's Actually, it, I think its price dropped significantly. It's like 20 or 25 bucks on at least a PS store. So yeah, check it out. It's a great game. Nice. I love that we, we stick to its picking games. <laughs> okay, then, then this was it for this week. We're actually exactly under one hour. So it's nice. And tune in next time with another episode of Elixir Mix. Bye-bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit 
C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.